everybody. How's the complaining fast been this week? I've been so excited to get together, and I thought about opening up the mics today, but I thought, I don't know what will come to the mics then on that one. We were working the muscles of Ephesians 4.29, remember all week long? Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Was it a wholesome week with this? Wholesome? You know what I didn't realize when I declared it last week? Honestly. Honest. Put it on my Bible. Honest. I did not know that it was March Madness week when I had declared a complaining fast. But many of you ladies reminded me of that this week, and I countered by, are you complaining about that, or it was a good thing. I actually had one mom come up to me and say that, um, I'll leave her name out of this, Ellie Brown. um, She came up to me and said, uh, I thought I heard you say it's a complaining feast all week long, so... She worked that muscle. She thought she was going to declare that. And then one of the students asked, real innocently, well, when do we get a break the complaining fast? (laughs) That was a very good question. I said to him, I said, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We get to break the complaining fast at the beginning of the sermon this Sunday. So for the next 35 minutes, you can moan and whine and groan and complain all you want. How's that? But in all seriousness, I hope that working those muscles this week, you found some fruit in that. We didn't just do it to uh, have some fun conversation together, but there was an intentionality around the exercise with Ephesians 4.29. Do you remember what it was tied to? The role of forgiveness and conflict, and what does it mean to look at the people in our lives who perhaps we're having some difficulty with, and what if we spent a week putting wholesome over this, and if we couldn't say something wholesome, we were just not going to say anything. So it might have been a very quiet week in some relational worlds, and instead taking all that energy and effort that would have flowed out here and spent some time praying and asking God for his perspective on what does he see when he looks at that situation, relationship, and all those dynamics. And so this is the point in the week when I ask you to reflect back on it. So I want to encourage you to do that, kind of finish out the exercise this week by reflecting and see if anything changed. And if it did change, make a commitment to continue to follow through on it. And maybe you need to extend your Ephesians 4.29 commitment into weeks ahead. But the goal has been all Lenten season. We've been in this series called Changed and Changing because that is the thrust of the Lenten season. It is about change, like There's this amazing claim Jesus makes on our lives. You can change. Isn't that amazing? Like, there's some things when you come to Christ that are changed instantaneously. At salvation, you are redeemed, you are adopted, you are saved, you are indwelt with the Spirit. Instantaneously at salvation, you are changed. And then, there's this other aspect that begins at salvation. You are changing. You are becoming in character who you already are in identity. Theologically, that's called sanctification. So at salvation, things change, and then sanctification is the ongoing progressive work of more of Christ in more of us. The Bible word for that is discipleship. So we're working all through the Lenten season this rhythm of changed and changing. And to become in character who we already are in identity, we put some direct effort into that because it's our lives that are actually changing. Have you noticed you're just not zapped with peace. You're not zapped with gentleness. You're not zapped with trust. You grow over the course of time by what? 
by engaging with your direct effort in the hands of the Spirit God uses to enable you to do and to become what you could never do or become by direct effort. That's called spiritual practices. So the whole Lenten season, we've just been working different spiritual practices, working some of these muscles. Remember setting our mind on things above? Remember we took that week and talked about how many times can we draw our attention through the week to Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And how does that affect just the way we relate to God all week long? And then all through the series, we've just tried to work these different. I just want to encourage you, here's the goal of the Lenten season. The early church fathers carved out these six weeks to spawn ongoing change post-Easter. There was a period of time set up to say, hey, you're headed into Easter week. It's a really significant week for your faith. So prepare yourself accordingly. And if you devote yourself to this rhythm properly, if you commit to something over 40 days, guess what it develops? A new habit a new pattern, a sustainable change in the way your spiritual life is going. And that should be, I think, a normal Lenten season. We should all be able to point back and say, God's really dealing with me in the Lenten season on this topic, and here's the way he's dealing with it on, and now here's the change that will flow post-Easter from it. So today, we begin what I think arguably is the most significant seven-day period of time for our faith. Today, we remember the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem. And he entered Jerusalem knowing this. He knew Spy Wednesday was coming, the day Judas was going to sell him out for 30, 50-cent pieces. That's Wednesday. He knew Monday, Thursday was coming when he would take the Last Supper with his disciples. He knew Good Friday, the arrest And the flogging and the beating and the eventual crucifixion would come on Friday. He knew Silent Saturday was coming when the stone would be rolled over the mouth of the grave. And it would look dark and done and finished. And then he knew, he always had in mind, that Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday would come. This all culminates... In these seven days, that's why there's so much real estate in the Gospels given to these seven days. If you just look at the number of chapters all through the Gospels that focus on the last week of Christ's life on earth, it should elevate the attention that this kind of a week warrants for our faith. And so I want to invite you into this journey this week. I pray that the Lenten season has prepared us well for a fruitful Passion Week beginning today with a reflection in Matthew 21 on Jesus' entry. So open up your Bibles to Matthew 21. We're looking at Palm Sunday and setting the context for Palm Sunday with Matthew's words, verse 8 and following. He's on the back of a donkey because he's fulfilling a a prophecy from Zechariah 700 years earlier. And he's entering on the back of a donkey, verse 8, into Jerusalem. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So the cloaks, which are like the outer clothing the people would wear, would kind of lay them to help keep the dust down. It was a symbol of respect. It was a symbol of honor. Think of it as rolling out the red carpet, we might say today. And then the palm branches, the significance of the palm branches are what they would use to symbolize victory, especially in military success. They would take palm branches and they would wave them. So it was a symbol of power, of victory, of authority. In this case, they're waving their palm branches to proclaim their king, their Messiah, is finally entering into Jerusalem. Now, he's a king, unlike any other king. Most people 
people, and I'm sure the crowd would have expected, a royal entry with a large motorcade and an elevated platform. And here Jesus comes in on the back of a donkey. He's a king, unlike any other king. And they're laying their cloaks and they're waving their palm branches. Solomon actually had palm branches carved into the gates and the walls of the temple to reinforce the significance of the role of palm branches. Hence, the day is called Palm Sunday. So verse 9, the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna, what we just sang. The word means the Lord saves. It's, a, it's like an exclamation point that just keeps shouting, Salvation, the Lord saves. Salvation, the Lord saves. They just keep saying it. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Lest you think this was a quiet entry. Lest you think this was kind of a private type situation. Remember, all through Jesus' earthly ministry, what did we consistently see? That he was on a different timetable than the people were on. The people wanted him to go public much earlier, and Jesus would withdraw. And he would get away from the crowds and he would tell them to, hey, keep it to yourself for a bit until when? Until this day, until this week. Now it's going public. Now it's the Father's Kairos moment. This is the God-appointed time. This is the time when it's all going to become clear who he is, why he came, and what he's going to do. So the whole city is now on high alert with this guy riding in like a donkey. And look what they're asking. Who is this? Do you know I think that's the most significant question you or I will ever answer in our life? I think it's number one. Of all the questions that are important to answer in life, who we say Jesus is, I would argue there's more in that than all the rest. That's a question that's going to matter 100 years from now. There's a lot hanging in the balance on who you say this Jesus of Nazareth is. Who is this? And this week... We want to attempt to answer that through what he does and what he said he would do and how he said he would do it. The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Notice they've got some aspects of it true, but they don't have the full story right there. They haven't quite crossed over into all of the ramifications of this. The Messiah who's going to give his life, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who's going to shed his blood. Because a lot of this group in the crowd right now shouting Hosanna, guess where they're going to be on Friday? Several of them are going to be in the crowd on Friday shouting what? Crucify him. And why? Because He's a king unlike any other king. He isn't just going to kick the Romans out, which is what many in the crowd wanted him to do and set the Jews up in authority. He's actually come to give himself away. A king who would lay down his life. Do you see how they were just really difficult to put these dots together? So they shifted like the sand from Hosanna to crucify him. And today what we're going to look at as I put in your notes, is we're going to look at the heart of Palm Sunday as the way of worship. And worship is a big deal with God. If you read any portion of the Bible, you don't have to read many pages to figure out God's got a lot to say and is very concerned with who or what we are worshiping. And the question would be, why? Why is it, why, do you think God needs us like stand up and give him a standing O, like the time we just spent singing together? You think God doesn't gain anything or need that. 
Acts 17 says the Lord of heaven and earth is completely all-sufficient, self-sufficient, as if he needed anything. He is completely whole in and of himself. He doesn't need his people to give him a standing O day after day or week after week. But he's really focused on the subject of worship, not because of what he gets from it, but because of what happens to his people when they engage in it. And you can jot in your notes Psalm 115. You can read that on your own this week if you want. Psalm 115 is the principle of worship that's worded like this. You become like what you worship. This is why God says it's a big deal what you're worshiping. This is why he's always asking them to deal with idolatry and to search their heart on what is the most valued seat in your life. Because whatever sits on that place of ultimate value in your life will, more than anything else, affect the kind of person you become. So if number one in your life, if you value above everything else achievement and accomplishment, you will become a driven person. If number one in your life, if you value money and possessions and more zeros and commas on the bottom line, if that matters to you more than anything else, you will become an increasingly greedy person. Or you put your family at the center of that and and you try to live vicariously through your kids and your kids are everything and your kids are the center and the family is it. You will become a controlling parent. If you put self, you know what, at the end of the day it's about the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. I do what I want, how I want, when I want because I'm the end of the deal here. It's all about what I want. If you do that, you will become an increasingly selfish person because what you worship more than anything else affects the kind of person you become and God's really, really interested in the kind of people we are becoming. So he's got a lot to say about worship because if you worship Christ, if you put the good shepherd on the throne of your life, you will become an increasingly Christ-like person. And the contact point we're going to look at with the subject today is what do we do with this issue of selfishness? Has anybody else experienced what I experience in this life? Like my selfishness can become in the category of breathtaking at times. It can be an artwork in and of itself. It's just amazing to me how much time and energy I can spend preoccupied with one primary subject, me. And when I do get around to thinking about others, it's amazing to me how the filter becomes how those others are relating to me. I can't even get away from myself there. And so what do you do with this subject? And think about this now. Who, could, who do you think exemplifies? Who's the best role model for selflessness we've ever seen? This is not a trick question. In church, we train our kids. I always tell Lily and Kaylin this. Hey, when the teachers are asking you something in church and you're not quite sure what to say, you know what you just need to say? Jesus. And about 75% of the time, you're going to be on it. So who is the best example of selflessness we have ever seen in the history of the world? Jesus. This week. If this week was about self, the whole seven days would look different. Remember who the innocent one was. Remember who had all power and authority to deal with all the injustice. And remember who went silent and who endured and who gave himself away 
drop after drop of that blood, every swing of the hammer into those nails, all the way to the point when he emptied himself, the ultimate picture of servanthood. So it tells me that there is an invitation in the yoke of Jesus to selflessness. And actually, I want to press it a little further. C.S. Lewis gave me this phrase, a self-forgetful person. How do we move from a self-centered, highly selfish person to the other end of the spectrum that I think Jesus reflects is a self-forgetful person. Here's how Lewis defined it. I put this quote in your notes for you. If we were to truly meet, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always, they would not be always telling us they were a nobody, which is actually a sign they're self-obsessed. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility, hear this now, is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. So there is a sacred gift available to anyone who chooses the yoke of Jesus called self-forgetfulness. Are you interested in it? Boy, I want more of that kind of life. Jesus says, if you come to me and you let me teach you how to live, because that's the invitation of being a Christian, where you come to Jesus with open hearts and open hands and you say, Jesus, teach me how to live, because everybody has to learn how to live from somebody. And what it means to be a Christian is you are learning to live your one and only life as Jesus would live it if he were you. That's what it means to be a Christian. So whatever your circumstances, whatever your everyday ordinary life looks like, and whatever occupation you have, family dynamics you have, wherever season of life you're in, being a Christian in that actual life is living that life as if Jesus would live it if he were you. That's being a Christian. And here's the invitation on Palm Sunday. The way of worship, there is something available in that yoke called self-forgetfulness. But at the center of self-forgetfulness, I think, is what's being modeled here with the palm branches on the road. There is this rhythm that we have to become centered in, a rhythm of worship that's going to greatly affect the kind of person we become. And if you're not quite sure what you're worshiping, just trace the trail of your time and your money and your energy and your thought life. So think about where you spend most of your time. Like when you've got the choice to spend your time on anything, where does your time go when you're not being dictated what you do? When you have resources to spend on whatever you want to spend them on, where do those resources go? When your thought life isn't forced to be thinking about something, where do your thoughts drift to? Trace the trail of all of that. Guess what that points to? The value, what you value most in life. Worship is about value. What sits on the throne that matters most to you. God wants to address that on Palm Sunday because the answer to that question will affect more than anything else who you become. And if you choose Christ as the answer to that, like the parable in the New Testament that said, Jesus is like this treasure hidden in a field that is so valuable, you sell the whole field, you buy that field just to get that treasure. That if you choose that, then there is a gift called self-forgetfulness available in his yoke to become an increasingly less selfish person. So two rhythms today we're going to look at this in. 
is a personal private rhythm to worship, and then there's the corporate group rhythm to worship, and then we're going to put it into practice. So under the personal and private banner, because there, there is this rhythm to worship. To worship God, we can follow Jesus' example on the private and personal nature to it. You know, Jesus modeled this. In Matthew 3, he was baptized. In Matthew 4, he was led out into the wilderness for how many days? 40 days to be tempted by Satan. What was he doing out there all alone? He was fasting. He was praying. He was in the scripture. He was worshiping. He was spiritually battling. Jesus was doing that all alone for 40 days. There is a personal and private rhythm to our worship, which, by the way, our students today, many of our middle school and high school students are about halfway through a 24-hour food fast. Why? Because Rob and Ian and our student ministry team, they think it's really, really important that our, stu- our students are learning to live. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a really important principle that Jesus modeled for us fasting rhythm. And our students, though they might be struggling their way through this afternoon, when they break the fast at the feast tonight... There will be an experience in their personal and private worship that will manifest in their corporate and group worship that's really healthy for the soul. Which, by the way, for this week, for us, we'll have our church-wide fast. So this is our week when we have a 24-hour fast together, a food fast as a congregation. We're going to shift the day this week. So some of you have already prepped your Fridays accordingly. I'm just going to adjust it a little bit because what we want to do this year is we want to begin the fast on Good Friday at 7. And we want to carry the fast through Silent Saturday. I think that's actually a better identification with spiritually the week what's going on and some of the hardships we all experience when you try to do a food fast. And like uh, one of the student leaders this morning telling me their head is pounding obsessively because they haven't had their massive intake of caffeine by a certain time and all of those all that that brings when we fast together. So Friday night at 7 till Saturday night at 7 this week. We're going to fast together, right? Food fast, meaning water or juice only. And then break the fast in whatever way you want to break it on Saturday night as we then gather for worship on Sunday morning. But we'll begin it on this Friday at 7. Why? Because it's personal and private. What are you going to do with all that time that you would normally have spent thinking about food and dealing with food and preparing it and cleaning up and cooking it and all that stuff? What do you do with all that time? Repurpose it for the kinds of things that Jesus modeled in the wilderness. Read through the gospel account of his last seven days. That'd be a good thing to do. Spend some time reflecting on the Lenten journey and say, what are the ways God's been speaking into you through the Lenten season? And what are kinds of change and commitments he's calling you to make as you move forward? That'd be a good thing to do. How about just some silence, solitude, reflection, prayer, journaling? Make it look whatever you want it to look like. The point is, there is a personal and private element to it that Jesus modeled. How about the Apostle Paul? Do you think he knows something about personal and private worship? Do you know Paul spent a bulk of his Christian life by the nature of when he lived and what God had asked him to do? He spent it alone because he got arrested a lot. That would tend to enhance your aloneness if you got arrested a lot. He wrote a bulk of the letters, 13 to 27 New Testament letters Paul wrote. A bulk of those letters were written from where? Jail, alone. And you say, what is he doing when he's sitting in jail all alone in these times? Well, you get little windows in his letters to what he was doing. He was Worshiping. Like Ephesians chapter 1, check this out. 
Behind the jail cell, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Man, I wish we could figure out what Paul's thinking about. But what is, Paul's just occupied. He's, he's, he's overwhelmed with the beauty and majesty and glory and goodness of God's grace manifested in him in Christ. And we spent several weeks last year talking about the transformation of this guy's life. The apostle Paul's life demands an explanation. That kind of a change demands a what happened to that guy. Jesus happened to that guy. And so what's manifested is there is a rhythm now in Paul's life that wasn't there before. He has found Christ and as a result has found a personal, private rhythm in his life of worship. So Jesus models it. Paul models it. The oldest living disciple, John, I'm not going to read it for you. You look up Revelation chapter 1 and the verse I put on your notes and you read those on your own and you see, have I had a personal worship time like that? John's alone on the island of Patmos and he's praying and he has an amazing time with God. There is a personal and private rhythm to this walk with God that manifests in worship. Now, what it looks like is as diverse as humanity. That it's occurring is normal Christian life because hunger is a sign of life. If you've been made alive by Christ, guess what's a natural outflow of being made alive with Christ? There's a hunger to know Christ. There's a hunger to be with him to become like him, to center yourself upon him, to set your mind on things above, to do what Paul's doing in Ephesians 1, to do what Jesus is doing in the wilderness, to do what John's doing in Revelation 1. It's the picture of hunger is a sign of life. Dead things are not hungry. Only those who are alive, if you've been made alive in Christ, which this week, right, those who've been made alive, the rhythm should be, normal Christian life would be a rhythm of rearranging our everydayness in such a way that there is a personal and private rhythm to our worship. So my question for you, my question for me, how's that rhythm going these days? What does it look like for you? How's God want to adjust it if it needs to be adjusted? What's been crowding out for a time and attention? What needs to be rearranged that this might become more of a normal following Jesus rhythm in our lives. But it's not just all about personal and private, right? Then there's this other aspect that the New Testament tells us, that there's this corporate and group aspect of rhythm. Because we're talking about worship. We're talking about worship as it applies in the yoke of Jesus, because in the yoke of Jesus, there's a gift of sacred self-forgetfulness. But the muscle we work is worship, because that occupies the throne, the seat of value, which will affect more than anything else who you become. And if you put the selfless, sacrificial lamb of the Son of God on the throne of your life, there will be a manifestation of selflessness in our life. As a matter of fact, that'd be a good barometer for all of us to have. A good checkpoint this year would be, how about we just assess our selfishness on a scale of 1 to 10, with the people who know us best. By the way, that's not good to do yourself. You actually probably need some people who really know you well, who spend the most time with you, right? Roommates, coworkers, teammates, spouse, children, the people who know you really well, who have to hang out with you when you have the stomach flu. Those kind of people, ask them to assess on a scale of one to 10 your selfishness 
and then file that away somewhere, and then a year from now, we should revisit that, and guess what we should all see? A year from now, those same people should assess an increasingly less selfish Eric Simpson, an increasingly more self-forgetful Eric Simpson, if what? If the rhythm of worship is in its right place over the course of time. I can't do this to myself. Anybody tried to put the sticky note that says, hey, become less selfish? How's that working out? Think about yourself less. That's not going to work. You need a power beyond yourself. There's Christ in you, the hope of glory. More of Christ and more of you will manifest itself as less selfish. There's got to be a rhythm in our life, and the rhythm is centered on worship. Personal, private, corporate, and group. And here's the example in the New Testament for corporate and group. Acts 2, 42 to 47. In our study of Acts, we hit this section. Peter had stood up, preached the first sermon in the church, 3,000 came to the altar. It was holy, crazy at that time, all kinds of people. And guess what they started to do? After they were made alive in Christ, there was a hunger to be with Christ and to come to know Christ and to set their minds on Christ and to be together with Christ's people. Acts 2, 42 and following. They circle this word in your Bible, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers' circle were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet, circled together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate, circled together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the, the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the people who were becoming alive in Christ, guess what they were immediately brought into? A group experience with others who've been made alive in Christ. It was their picture of a local church gathering. This is the beginning, the church of Acts. Now, we're not given a specific grid on how their worship experiences were to look. There's not a temple in the New Testament that says, hey, when you get together, this is how you have an opening song, opening prayer, reading of Scripture, all that. No, because I think God wanted to respect culture, diversity, humanity, all that, and let the cultures of the world express. Here's what we are given, certain principles, certain values that are common for all of us when we get together. And that's what I put on your note sheet there. I want us to think for a few minutes about what is it about us when we get together? Why would God say it's important for us to gather regularly? When you gather as a people made alive in Christ, there is a greeting element that comes. Like when you, when you come in the front doors at Eagle Church, do you know that you're walking into a community that the Bible calls brothers and sisters? Some of you are journeying through a very lonely season in your life. Do you know the least lonely place you should find in your week? Do you know where that should be? Right here. All these people who you may not even know their names, God says they're your family. It should feel like coming home, like coming to family. Even if you're going through the kind of situation in your life where maybe your biological family is unraveling at a rapid pace, you go, I'm all alone, and you come here. The Bible word for this is fellowship. So when you come to the front doors, and, and Dennis Barrow's there at the front doors, he's greeting you with sometimes a big goofy chef hat and a smiling face and a welcome. And you go to the coffee bar, and some of the folks who serve at the coffee bar, you know, Scott or 
or Jane or any of those at the coffee bar, they say what? Good morning with a smile on their face and serve you a cup of coffee. And maybe you run into someone in the atrium and they, they give you a, a hug and ask you about your week. And what it, There's a relational connectivity that happens when God's people get together, even from the most introverted among us. Even the introverts are called to gather. And yes, actually open your mouth perhaps with a word or two, two or three maybe, Just, hello. This is family. There's a greeting element. There's a relational connectivity when we gather. It's really, really important to our formation. And then there's a scripture element when we gather, right? There's this other component with God's people when they gather that, what's the verse 42 say? They gathered for the apostles' teaching. Scripture at that time. So when we get together, God's word's going to be read and taught and studied and Reflected upon. Why? Because all of us have a story, right? All of us have a story, and this connects God's story and our story. We're trying to figure out how, how's our story connecting with God's greater story. That's, that's the role of His Word. Helps us connect those things together. So there'll be various aspects when we're together of being immersed in His God-breathed book. Communion. We're going to get together around the Lord's table when we get together. And what do we do at the communion table? We break bread together. This isn't a thing you just do all alone. Do you notice you see your brothers and sisters, some of them with tears streaming down their feet, their cheeks, and they're ripping the bread, and they're dipping the juice, and you see them clustered all around and praying together. And even if you're alone, you're really not alone. And What are we doing as a community when we do that? We're actually proclaiming His grace is amazing, and His sacrifice is completely sufficient for everything I fell on my face with this week. His grace is amazing. And his sacrifice is sufficient. And we go to the Lord's table. And guess what centers all of us? It's Christ's life and Christ's shed blood and Christ's broken body. And we do that together. So there's this greeting element. There's this scripture element. There's this communion element. There's singing together. And there's silence. Some of you, this is the most enjoyable aspect of why you gather. You're wired a lot like my wife is. My wife loves it when I tell her, hey, you know what, Sunday, you're going to love, honey, you're going to love the service coming up because the music portion's like this and the talking portion's like this. She says, that's awesome because she connects with God so well in music and worshiping together with her brothers and sisters. That just is so meaningful and so refreshing to, your, to her soul and to so many of you. Well, that's a part. Do you know that? Almost all 150 psalms, you know what they primarily were? They were prayers that were put together and expressed together in worship gatherings, in praises and choruses and hymns, to the point where still God's people all around the world are doing that. They're not just praying the psalms, they're singing the psalms. What does Colossians 3, 16 say? Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. There's something about when God's people get together that there's an expression of praise from our lips because it's our whole bodies that are involved in that. Our whole bodies are being transformed. Remember the discussion we had in January where a soul with a mind and a body and a will, it's our whole being. Guess what represents a body's response? When we do something with our hands, when we express it with our voices, when we look up with our eyes, do you see our whole bodies involved? There's an expression of praise. That's normal Christian life stuff. Now, for some of you, that's the least favorite part of the service. I get that. Here's all I want to say to you. Don't just skip out on that part because it's a preference issue. 
even if you engage at a smaller level, whatever level you're at in that, don't just hang out somewhere else while the music time's going on. Why? Because who knows what God might do in your own soul? Because God says it's important to express something of praise. And there are times in which you might just want to sit quietly and let everyone else express on your behalf. That's fine. You can still be engaged, though, because though there's this rhythm, right? And not everyone can sing in tune, which is why we don't give all of you a mic. <laughs> Those who can sing and play in tune help lead the rest of us. This is not like, you know, graduate school worship people up here. These are just blue chair people like you and me who can sing and play in tune, and they help lead us in worship, and aren't you appreciative of that? That's their role. That's got the bodies put together. They have a role to help lead us. They're worshipers just like you and me, and they help us express collectively together. But there's also a rhythm in our worship. Have you noticed in the Psalms a word that maybe you in your Bible, you're like, what does that word mean? Selah? Did you notice that all through your Psalms? S-E-L-A-H, all through there. A lot of debates about what the musical term means, but here's what's consistent in the conclusion. It means pause, reflect, be still, think about what you just said or sung. So here's the rhythm, gang, when we get together. And we're going to work this muscle a little more in the weeks and months ahead. Because the culture of Eagle Church and our worship, I don't think we've, we've struggled with striking up the band and, and having the drums and the guitar and the vocalists sing, and they do a great job. But here's what I think we need to be stretched in. We need to be stretched in some Selah moments. Because there's some times where you just need to be still and to be quiet and to listen and to internalize what in the world we just said or sung or read. And so there's this rhythm of silence and singing when God's people get together. That's really important in affecting our soul. And so I just want to encourage you, as you always have been so gracious with, let us stretch you a bit in the weeks and months ahead in some of this. Just go on the journey with us. Be open. Let's see what God does. Because there's no prescriptive element to this. We just find the, the rhythm that's right for us for where we are in our development. So there's greeting, there's scripture, there's communion, there's singing and silence, there's offering gifts. When we get together, guess what we get to do? We get to give back to God the first fruits of all he's given us. Do you know what this does? This drives a dagger right in the heart of greed in our life. Do you know how you say, money, you don't own me? You know how you proclaim, hey, Jesus is right. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, Matthew 6. Do you know how you proclaim that week after week? You write the check and you place in the offering. You give back the first 10% of all he's given you. You work that muscle. Why? Because God needs it? No, because we do. Because I do. I need to be reminded money doesn't owe me. Zeros and commas don't define me. How do I proclaim that? I give it away. I keep giving it away. Give it, give it, give it. And we do that when we get together. And God's people have been doing that ever since they started getting together. And then there's this benediction element when we get together. You're sent out as the people to enter a new week with his blessing upon you. So just kind of scan down that list. And here's the question I'm often asked as a pastor. Pastor, why can't I just worship God at home and watch it online? You could. You could. But my short response would be, why would you want to? Look at all that you'd be missing out on if you did that. You don't get a, a greeting 
You don't get a warm handshake and a hello and a, and a hug and a good to see you and a smile and embrace. You don't get the relational contact sitting with the screen. You don't get the shared experience around the communion table with your brothers and sisters all coming to that table physically together. You don't get to experience the uniting of our voices in singing and in silence. You don't get to experience that alone behind a screen. You don't get to experience the benediction blessing of going out into the next week. There's so many things that we miss if we don't gather together. So could you just stay home and watch it online? Sure, you could, personal and private worship. But here's, you're missing at least 50% of your formation in the worship rhythm. Because there's all these other things that God says is really important, which is probably why he encourages us repeatedly, don't neglect the gathering together with God's people. Why? Because there's all these other aspects of formation in our rhythms. And gang, I know, I know, I can see it in some of your faces, that there's no lack of things that compete for your Sunday mornings. I get it. Culturally, more competition for Sunday morning than ever, right? Back in the 80s when I first started going to church, there was still this sacred thing on Sundays called church and worship. And it was kind of like everything else in the culture just kind of kept Sundays in the Midwest, at least in the 80s. No one really did anything on Sundays but go to church and hang out as a family. And then we got into the 90s and the 2000s, and then Sunday afternoon got really occupied with lots of things. And then in the last five or ten years, it's been more and more, what, Sunday morning stuff. And here's all I want to ask you to do. I just want to ask you to lay your personal and your corporate rhythm of worship before the Lord and ask Him what He sees when He looks at that rhythm in your life. That's all I want to ask you to do. I don't think it's too much of the Lord to ask of us that we prioritize one every seven days being together in God's house with his people doing the kinds of things we just talked about. I don't think that's too much. I don't think that's a a big stretch of an ask. I think that's kind of baseline. I don't think it should be down three or four or five on the list. If he's the treasure of our life and he's most valuable, if he's worth buying the whole field just to get that treasure, if he's worth that in your life, guess what? It's going to affect what you say yes and no to on Sunday mornings. And I get it. There's a lot of schedules that compete for it. There's a lot of travel this and travel that. Here's what I think. I think if enough Christians got together and put a stake in the ground on this issue, I think there's some coaches who are going to make some changes. But I think we struggle with that. And I think we've got to look each other in the eye. We've got to have some time with the Lord on this issue and say, here's what other burden I have. I'm burdened about what it's doing to our own soul in our long-term development, and I'm really burdened about what we're passing on to the next generation. Some of us see our kids go off and go off to college and grow up, and we're all fretting out about, well, I can't figure out why they're not connected and devoted to a church anywhere. And then we have to have the harder conversation about, well, for the 15 years or so they were under your roof, maybe two out of four Sundays was what you'd consider a really strong rhythm of church involvement and church attendance. What's that passing on, gang? I mean, I think for us, I'm talking about people now in the community of Jesus. If you've been made alive with Christ, if you're committed to live in his yoke and to go his way, then here's a rhythm that's normal for our life. Jesus says, you got to get together regularly. And I don't think 50% of the year would be his definition of regularly, which is the current stats, by the way, for regular church attendance, is, you know, if you're hitting it about two out of four Sundays a month these days, that's like you're regular. And I think we've got to take a sober look at this and ask ourselves, 
adjust where we need to adjust, because here's the deal. We'll rearrange our schedules around the stuff we value the most. All you got to do is get a call to a concert or a game at the last minute that you really, really want to go to and figure out how you rearrange all your life to get there. And I think God would say, well, what about gathering with my people and serving my bride and being a part of it? I think there's something we all have to look at and really have some hard conversations as a family unit with the kids and schedules and all that and to say, hey, what's going to matter most? What's going to be a committed rhythm personally and corporately we're going to live in? So I close one final story. Wendell Berry wrote a book called Jaber Crow. Here's the picture, kind of a cover of the book. It's a story of a man named Jaber. It's a novel who turned away from his calling to be a pastor. Instead, he became a barber. But he stayed involved with the church. And Jaber's kind of having a moment with the Lord as he's sweeping up the sanctuary one Sunday afternoon. I'll close with these words. One day, when I went up there to work, sleepiness overcame me, and I lay down on the floor beside or behind the back pew to take a nap. Waking or sleeping, I couldn't tell which, I saw all the people gathered there who had never been there. I saw them as I had seen them from the back pew. I saw them in all the times past and to come, all somehow there in their own time and in all time and in no time. The cheerfully working and singing women, the men quiet or reluctant or shy, the weary, the troubled in spirit, the sick, the lame, the desperate, the dying, the little children tucked in the pews beside their elders, the young married couples full of visions, the old men with their dreams, the parents of their proud children, the grandparents with tears in their eyes, the grieving widows and widowers the proud, the humble, the attentive, the distracted. I saw them all. I saw the creases crisscrossed in the backs of men's necks, their work-thickened hands, the Sunday dresses faded with washing. They were just there. They said nothing, and I said nothing. I seemed to love them all with a love that was mine merely because it included me. When I came to myself again, my face was wet with tears. That's worship in Jesus' church. Let's pray. And as the worship team comes up, we're going to take some time and uh, want to have a Selah moment here with you. Let's call this our Selah of the Lenten season. Not just the topic we covered this morning, but many of you have been on a journey for six weeks on this with us. And I want you to just kind of solidify with the Lord where's the contact point of change he's asking. say, Jesus, here's my whole life. You see it for what it is. Whether it's fear or worry or anger or 
selfishness. just lay our lives down before you. And we make a covenant to obey you. Whatever the leading, whatever the prompting, just say yes and amen to it. And just say, all right, Lord, I don't know how it's all going to get worked out, but here's my yes and here's my amen. Jesus, for these next several minutes, would you teach us as a people what it means to be a worshiping community together? Would you lift our eyes to the hills and know that our help comes from the Lord? Whatever it is we've been carrying through this Lenten season, thank you that this week you made it abundantly clear through your life this week. Your grace is sufficient. Your sacrifice is complete. So lift our eyes up now. Open our mouths now. Call forth a worship and praise that is due your name. For you are worthy, O God. You are worthy of worship. And we give it to you now. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.